Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Russia pummels Ukraine with airstrikes, claiming revenge, but at what cost to its military capability? It's a high-stakes strategy that is leading to strategic errors in judgment. The costs to Russia are staggering. Their supplies are running out. Moscow has also appointed a new commander for all of its operations in Ukraine. We'll tell you all about the man known as General Armageddon and assess if strategic changes are coming. Also this week, from MOD critic to Defence Minister, Sarah Atherton tells us her plans for the forces. I really want to continue the good work that I started with the Defence Select Committee on Women in the Armed Forces. I'm really keen that we look at some of the issues that are being raised by service personnel time time again accommodation wi-fi and food and the raf squadron now in qatar to keep football fans safe at the world cup if they see us well they probably won't but they'll definitely hear us then they know that there isn't going to be a threat from the sky On Monday, Russia fired an estimated half a billion dollars worth of missiles at Ukraine in the biggest wave of airstrikes since the early days of the invasion. The strikes have continued. The Kremlin calls them revenge for a blast which destroyed part of its critically important bridge to Crimea. They've brought war back to cities like Kyiv and Lviv in the far west, which had experienced months of relative peace. In every major Ukrainian town and city, emergency services have been dealing with the aftermath, fighting fires and trying to rescue civilians from collapsed buildings. But Ukraine claims its forces also saved many lives by shooting down more than half of the Russian missiles as they streaked across the sky. In this case, with a Western-supplied shoulder-launched air defence missile. So is this all just a very costly form of Russian revenge? It has punished Ukraine civilians, but has hit few military-relevant targets. Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark is with us once again. And Mike, one of your eminent colleagues, Professor Lawrence Friedman, described these strikes as not a new war-winning strategy, but a sociopath tantrum. Is it really that simple? Well, I think that's the essence of it, because uh, Putin was obviously driven to respond to the Kirsch Bridge destruction. I mean, if there is a military logic behind it, it is to attack the critical national infrastructure of Ukraine, as well as civilian targets. And in a way, I mean, what Putin's message is to the Ukrainian people is that you will suffer for the Kirsch Bridge, and I will make sure that you have a really miserable winter. And insofar as that that is a military logic, it was there. But as Lawrence Friedman says, I mean, that logic was really driven by his sense of vengeance, his personal sense of vengeance, I think. And Mike, there is, however, a much quieter suggestion of a new strategy this week. Belarus, big ally of Moscow, has deployed its troops on exercise with Russia to the north of Ukraine. Could we be about to see another push in from the north, perhaps the northwest of Ukraine, which would take Ukrainian effort away from the real fight in the south and east? That's a plausible strategic motive for Russia and Belarus, because if they could open up a new front 
it would be good for them to drag some Ukrainian troops away. But this is not going to happen quickly. The Belarusian forces are very small. On a good day, they could probably only turn out 15,000. And if they had to go somewhere next week, there'd be about five or 6,000 of them there. Um, so I think they want to raise the possibility of an incursion, but that's some time away. And if it did happen, my guess it would be the other side of, of the new year, to be honest. Um, but if that did happen, the Ukrainians could deal with it pretty easily. It would be a distraction, but it would be no more than a, a distraction. There's no big second front about to open up in this war because the Russians don't have the troops and the Belarusians, A, don't want to do it, and B, have a very small and not very capable army. And Mike, I mentioned the cost of the Russian missiles, half a billion dollars, 70 or 80 something of them on Monday alone, depending who you believe that is, of course. Um, either way, that's a lot of missiles to use up. Western analysts have been saying for some time that Russia must be running short of this kind of capability. Does this suggest actually they might have more than we realise? Well, they've been improvising. So they're using anti-ship missiles with enormous warheads. I mean, sort of an eight-ton missile designed to attack an aircraft carrier, and they've been using them against civilian targets. They're using surface-to-air missiles in a ground mode, S-300s firing ground-to-ground. And they're mm. using drones, these Iranian drones, the Shahid-136, flying from Belarus. So they're improvising. But they are clearly running out of the sort of missiles that they want, like the caliber cruise missiles, which they fired from, from the sea. They haven't got very many of those, mainly because they ran short of components for them some time ago. The big question will be, will they restock with sophisticated missiles, say from China or from North Korea? Now, they might be able to get some from North Korea. I doubt if the Chinese would give them these missiles because the Americans are watching very, very closely. And if China helps... Russia too much, then it will be subject to sanctions and secondary sanctions. And mm. at the moment, Xi Jinping is being very cautious about what he's giving his, his friend and ally in Moscow as Putin runs short. Meanwhile, Mike, the, the UK and NATO allies have just promised more and better air defence weapons. But we also know NATO's concerned about stocks. Could we soon be at a tipping point where one or both sides run dry of these high-end capabilities? And if so, what's that going to do to this war? Yeah, very important point, because, uh, you know, this is industrial warfare in Europe again, and our defence industries, they've consolidated a lot in the last few years, there's only one or two major suppliers, and they're used to supplying 20 or 30 units of missiles or tanks or whatever it might be every year, and now we're asking them for three and 400 a year or more. Um, you know, th there's, a, there's an order of magnitude difference in what we now need, because this is war on an, an industrial scale. Whether industry will be able to do it will be an interesting question. In the United States, they've got exactly the same sort of problem, that we've given the Ukrainians a lot of our existing stocks, so we need to restock ourselves and at higher levels and give Ukraine even more in order to continue this fight. This is only the tip of the iceberg, and the iceberg will be expensive and will require a great deal of restructuring within the current defence industry. When Lawrence Friedman described these airstrikes as a sociopath's tantrum, he was, of course, referring to President Putin. But two days before they began, he had appointed a new military commander for his special operation in Ukraine. General Sergei Sorovakin has a brutal and ruthless reputation, from quelling democracy protests in Moscow to leading the Kremlin's military campaign in Syria. 
So what lessons for Ukraine can be drawn from his track record? And how does he compare to the general leading Ukraine's fight back? Well, let's bring in Dr. Marina Myron, researcher in defence studies at King's College London. Uh, Marina, good to speak to you. What, what is General Sorovikin's brief history? Why has he been chosen? Thank you so much for having me. So um, that's a very interesting one because we have two figures which are substantially very different. On one hand, we have the Ukrainian general Valery Zaluzhny, and on the other hand, we have General Surovikin from the Russian side, who has, uh, let's say, a less academic military career than his counterpart. However, he ha- has been known to be very uh, obsessed with military discipline and very brutal indeed on the battlefield. He started off suppressing demonstrators during the alleged coup of Mikhail Gorbachev in 91, and he received um, charges. He spent some time in prison. He's gained experience in Chechnya. He actively took part in the modernization of the Russian armed forces from 2008 onwards. And later on, he went on to Syria as a commander of the Air Force, despite the fact that he had absolutely no experience um, in air operations whatsoever. However, he was overseeing airstrikes. He was overseeing the destruction of Aleppo, and he was already ready to face an adversary on the contemporary battlefield when Ukraine started. This post has been specifically created for him, knowing for his successes in Syria, knowing for his battle experience, you know, his iron discipline, his focus on outputs makes him from the Russian perspective ideal to lead this operation because some hardliners in Russia were saying that Russia is too soft and it's not a coincidence that the airstrike started right when he was appointed for his first day in office. And Marina, um, I mean, he has a reputation for being particularly brutal, accused of overseeing the use of chemical weapons in Syria. What effect do you think his appointment will have? The problem is we don't know to what extent he was involved. There are some allegations. There are other stories coming from the other side. But the picture that is being painted of him is as this ruthless general who doesn't care about civilians, who dehumanizes the enemy. So when he is on foreign territory, everybody looks like an enemy. And so we are probably to expect a less regard for the likes of critical civilian infrastructure and mm-hmm. the possibility of conducting strikes, even if those strikes mean that there will be collateral damage. So I think he will be much more ruthless um, when leading the special military operation, which is now about to switch to a counter-terrorist operation in the areas that have been recently annexed. And counter-terrorist operation is, again, something else. And he's got experience in that. He's done that in Syria and he's done that in Chechnya. And Mike, um, as Marina pointed out, this is the first time the Kremlin has said one person is an overall military charge of the Ukraine war. What do you make of all of this and its likely effects? Yes, I mean, at one point, uh, Gerasimov, who's the chief of the general staff, was, as it were, trying to get hold of the whole thing. And he was there on the battlefield and he seems to have been wounded uh, and then he was withdrawn. But the Russians have, have always had a problem in this war in trying to run three or four different fronts at once. Whether an overall commander will change the nature of what's happening on the ground, I rather doubt, because the problems they've got are structural. 
they are deep problems and it doesn't matter how brutal or even how intelligent the commander is and this man is more brutal than he is intelligent they will not succeed until they can do something about their deeper structural problems and let's look then at Ukraine's top military man, General Valery Zaluzhny. Marina, briefly, what's his track record and his style? So in contrast, Zaluzhny is a sort of an academic general, if you wish. He didn't serve in the Soviet military. He started his military career somewhat later than his counterpart. So he started in 97 and he went on to become a platoon commander and um, ascended to battalion commander. In 2005, he entered the National Defense Academy of Ukraine. He was an excellent student and he's much more, shall we say, humble. He was the one who never expected to become a general in the first place. He was very obsessed with Gerasimov's writings, with uh, Russian doctrine. However, having gained experience working with NATO troops across Europe, he has created a lot of flexibility. So he, he thought that he can change the mindset of the military where there is a unity of effort, but decentralized command. So mm -hmm. he would give the commander on the ground uh, flexibility to take their own decision. That is in stark contrast with USSR's top-down leadership approach. So we have this general who seems to be much more caring for his troops, who understands the adversary. He knows the Russian approach and tries to create a counter approach and use the weaknesses in Russian leadership and command by using this flexibility, small dispersed units. And Michael Clark, how does the Ukrainian general stack up against Russia's new commander? Could this change from Moscow threaten or undermine his approach? I don't think so, because the, the approaches, as Marina said, are two different approaches. You've got, you've got the Russians fighting a sort of Second World War-style war, and under Zaluzhny, the Ukrainians are fighting a Western-style war, a 21st century war. And remember, too, that uh, Sorovkin, I mean, in 1995, he was accused of, he was, he's a criminal. Um, he, was, he was stealing weapons on a quite large scale and selling them. The accusation was dropped eventually, but there's a great deal of evidence about it. He's a crook. And that's one of the reasons that Putin likes him, because he's part of that sort of mafia group who are in control. So Putin gets people with him who he likes, who he trusts. And by definition, they are old-fashioned thinkers who misunderstand the modern nature of power and war. And this, from an academic point of view, I mean, despite the awfulness of the war, academically, this is a fascinating clash of military cultures that we're seeing unfold in front of us. Marina, with a new military man at the top of Russia's operations in Ukraine, what, what is your prediction for the next few weeks or months? It is difficult to predict what is going to happen, but obviously there will be an increase in operational tempo, I think. The approach itself might be much more violent, and there were a lot of hardliners calling for more airstrikes from the Russian side. And I think um, the reason Putin appointed Suvorikin is not just because he trusts him, but because he wanted to appease those hardliners. But it seems like you have, on the one hand, this heavy bear who cannot move because of his weight, and then you, you have kind of a fox who is illusionary with his troops who are much more mobile and who, who can outsmart the bear despite the fact that they might not be as strong 
and not as numerous as the Russians. Dr. Marina Myron, good to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Mike, stay with us. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrap. The UK's new government under Liz Truss has had a tumultuous first month. The turmoil in several forms has left a political shake-up at the Ministry of Defence very much overshadowed. Ben Wallace's team of ministers was heavily reshuffled. Perhaps the most eye-catching appointment was Sarah Atherton as Minister for Defence, People, Veterans and Service Families. A veteran herself, she's tasked with addressing thorny issues of welfare, service culture and discipline. There is she knows well, having delivered some scathing criticism of how they were being handled when she sat on the Commons Defence Committee. Well, now she's inside the tent with an opportunity to deliver the change she's called for. In her first interview since becoming a minister, Sarah Atherton told BFBS SIP reps Rosie Layden what she plans to achieve on a visit to HMS Diamond for World Mental Health Day. Well, you know, I'm a nurse and social worker. I have worked in a psychiatric hospital in the past. Mental health is really important to me. One in four of us will suffer with some sort of mental health issue. So, you know, it's really important that people are resilient, they are aware, they know. And of course, if they accept and have strategies in place to deal with life's eventualities, it means that we can stave off more serious issues like depression, anxiety. So, you know, it's really good that we're looking collectively at uh, promoting positive, uh, holistic uh, well-being in our service personnel. I mean, you've been a member of the Defence Select Committee. You've served in the armed forces yourself. You know, you're all over this, but this is your first time as a minister. How do you hope to affect some of the change that you've been calling for from the inside? Well, my portfolio is vast. But I have a few key issues I really want to work with. And obviously, I want to continue the good work that I started with the Defence Select Committee on Women in the Armed Forces. Perhaps a little bit more behind the scenes now, but that is certainly an area that I will be pursuing. I'm really keen that we look at some of the issues that are being raised by service personnel time and time again, regardless of service, which is accommodation, which is Wi-Fi and which is food. You know, our service personnel are our most valued assets and they need to feel that. And there are a few things here that we could really work with and get over the line. My predecessors have been working, the Secretary of State is working on these issues uh, and I see it very much my role now to pick these up and make sure we're delivering for our service personnel. The previous Veterans Minister attended Cabinet. You won't do that in this role. Do you see that as diminishing your power to achieve that kind of change? There's been a lot of confusion about this. So, Honourable James T.P. Armed Forces and Veterans Minister is responsible for the OVA and he has an invite on Cabinet. I am sitting in the MOD and I have the portfolio for um, service people, veterans and service families, which I'm really keen that that is within my brief. So I'm really excited to be doing some good work there around service families. We're going to be working collectively together. We're going to be working on the good work that Johnny Mercer and Leo Doherty have done. And together we're going to be delivering. One of the things that I know you for, many people know you for, is your report into women in the armed forces. Um, A very strong report. It's been a year since that was released. You're now within the ministry. How much of the changes recommendations you made are being put into place? I've been really quite amazed at how much work is going on. I didn't quite realise how my report has rocked the foundations of the MOD. 
great. That is absolutely fantastic. And I'm really delighted that they've really got on with pace with most of the recommendations. I've got an eye on a few of the recommendations that I'll be looking at behind the scenes to make sure they deliver. But I am so impressed with the MOD and what they've been doing. One of the, the big issues was with the, the complaints procedure. Things were still going so slowly and but it's often the person making those complaints who would be at the sharp end of that negative process. You recommended creating a central defence authority and taking complaints about sex assault and rape right out of the military system. Is that going to happen? That was something that the MOD did not want to adopt. They wanted to introduce a single service independent complaint system and that's something I was only looking at last night. You know, the devil is always in the detail to make sure that we will be delivering with a single service independent complaint system. And serving women can be confident that their interests are being looked after and that the progress is, is being made. Absolutely. And I'm expecting, as confidence builds, for people to speak out. And I always want them to speak out because without them, we wouldn't have made the progress we have now, not only for serving personnel, but women following behind us. So thank you very much to all them. We've done that. Confidence is building in the system. And, and because of that, I'm expecting to see more complaints coming in. And you mentioned service families being part of your brief. Is that the first time that's been included as part of this role? As far as I'm aware, yes, and it's something that the Secretary of State was keen to do. I was a service wife. I was in married quarters, and I know sometimes how overlooked that cohort of very special people can be. So I want to make sure they are recognised in strategy and policy making. The Minister for Defence, People, Veterans and Service Families, Sarah Atherton, talking to Rosie Layden. And Michael Clark, uh, Sarah Atherton says it herself, issues raised time and time again around accommodation, food and Wi-Fi. Why is it we've been hearing about these kind of problems for decades, frankly, yet despite all the commitment we hear from each new set of ministers, there's still the perennial bugbears. Yeah, they certainly are. You know, whenever we look at the offer of the military to recruit people and retain them, the same three or four things always come out. It's pay, it's accommodation and education for children. Those are the three big issues that always come out. But now there's a fourth big issue, which is the sort of thing that Sarah Athen is dealing with, is welfare in the broader sense that the services will care for you. It wasn't really on the table 10 years ago, but it it really is now because of broader changes in society. And, you know, every time there's a defence review, one of the things I always notice is that one of the early statements in those documents is that people are fundamental to the quality of our defence. And that's exactly what Sarah Atherton says. That's up there front and centre. And then the, the, the chapter on personnel is chapter eight or chapter nine. It's the afterthought chapter, but they always say it up front. People are fundamental, which indeed they are. And then there's a few ideas thrown in at the end about how they'll improve this and improve that. The fact is that their heart has never really been in it because they know they should do it, but it requires requires more structural change than the MOD feels it's able to make when it's got so many other things to worry about in terms of strategies and procurement. So it's always the poor relation, although they won't admit it. Uh, And Mike, from the way she was talking, uh, Sarah Afton's heart does definitely sound like it's in it. Um, She is a parliamentary undersecretary, the most junior ministerial level. How much power or influence do ministers at that level really have to make the changes they want? Uh, very little. Parliamentary undersecretaries come and go. When they resign on principle, nobody even notices. Now, I'm not being rude to Sarah Ratherton in this. Um, She's obviously got her heart in in the right place in this respect, and now she's on the inside. But she will only really be able to make a difference, I would say, if she can stay in that groove 
and then move up, say, from being parliamentary undersecretary to perhaps in another government to minister for the armed forces. That's a route to make a difference. But as parliamentary undersecretary, you're there to raise a flag for certain issues, but you don't really have a whole lot of power to do much about them. You need other people to do that. In just over five weeks, the World Cup kicks off in Qatar. Personnel from the RAF's 12th Squadron have just arrived in the country to prepare for the tournament. Not as spectators, but to help secure it, patrolling the skies around the stadiums. 12th Squadron is a joint UK-Qatari unit, which has been training some of the Gulf states' own pilots to fly British-made Typhoon jets. Simon Newton was at RAF Coningsby as they left their Lincolnshire base. For football fans heading to Qatar next month, this is what security sounds like. From their base at RAF Coningsby, four typhoons set off. Ahead for these British and Qatari pilots, a three and a half thousand mile flight to the Gulf. Next month, these jets and four others that are already there will police the skies above Qatar's eight World Cup stadiums, protecting fans, players and the public, including, of course, thousands of England and Wales supporters. If they see us, well, they probably won't, but they'll definitely hear us, then they know that there isn't going to be a threat from the sky. Squadron leader Luke Wilkinson is one of the pilots. We provide deterrence. We'll also provide that ability to react to threats should we need to. Project Thariat, so the... um, the overall stand-up of the Qatari typhoon wing is lasting around six months. About two months in is when the World Cup preparations really start. So we're getting going in earnest through November to make sure that we're good and ready for the 21st. I guess everyone wants to know this when you go down the pub, just what it's like to fly one of these things. To be, you said you came from a tornado background, is that right? Came from a tornado background, yeah. Um, it was excellent aircraft, but um, while she was getting on a bit, she was also a little bit underpowered. There's nothing quite like the power that comes from the typhoon in terms of 40,000 pounds of thrust at... Uh, at sea level so you may have seen us go up like a dingbat it is an, is an absolute dream to fly it's very easy in terms of the up down left right but there's a lot of information comes in so we're more like data processors than pilots please don't let that take away from the um uh, the glamour of it all it is still quite hard going on the body because we can pull up to 9g and we've got an extreme roll rate so it's it is an all immersive experience one well, final question how you get there you're going to take presumably some fuel from the voyager on the way down absolutely so we're trailing behind a voyager these four jets and we'll be staging all the way through eastern mediterranean and then down through egypt through saudi arabia and into into qatar that way in august qatar took delivery of its first four typhoon jets the gulf state signed a contract five years ago to buy 24 Eurofighters plus nine hawk trainers part of a £5 billion deal that's also seen the RAF and Qatar form a joint flying unit, 12 Squadron, based here at RAF Coningsby, the first of its kind since the Second World War. The World Cup is the Joint Squadron's first operational deployment, involving more than 200 personnel and eight Typhoon jets. Air Commodore Richard Yates oversees the UK Qatari Typhoon programme. The Joint Squadron is going to go and deploy to a Qatar air base at Duckham, which is a brand new state-of-the-art facility. The squadron will be up and running alongside the Qatari squadrons, and it's a fantastic base to operate from and provide the security for World Cup 22. This deployment to Qatar is, the, uh, is their longest to date. They've done several exercises together in Qatar, um, but this is their, their first, first long deployment, and there is an operational component as part of it. But the, uh, the key part is how we prepare the Qataris for, for owning and operating Typhoon over the next several decades. It's entirely feasible that uh, you'll be able to see RAF aircraft operating over Qatar during the World Cup period um, as England pro- progresses all the way through the, uh, the tournament.
The Qataris have renamed their typhoons the Al Thariat, Arabic for holy wind. Next month, British and Qatari pilots will fly side by side, providing deterrence and a dash of spectacle above the world's most watched sporting tournament. Simon Newton at RAF Coningsby. Now, last December, as we tried to predict what we might be talking about in 2022, this is one of the things that you told us, Mike. This time next year, we will be looking forward to the third and fourth place playoff followed by the final of the World Cup in Qatar. There'll be a lot of security issues around it, a lot of threats of terrorism, a lot of instability, probably. So if we all get to the end of the World Cup this time next year, and it looks like any other World Cup, I think there'll be a great sigh of relief. So you were right, Mike, uh, that we would be talking about the World Cup as a defence matter. But but why do you think there is a specific concern to Qatar? Because we see all the big sporting events as a possible target anyway. Yes, we do. But this one is more vulnerable. I mean, this is the biggest thing that there's ever been in the Gulf. It's the first time any Gulf state has uh, staged anything like, like this, one of the great uh, uh, sort of crown jewels of world sport. And that's bound to attract a lot of... Uh, attention from those who would like not just to disrupt it but to make a point and I think the terrorist threat is higher if it's anywhere in the Gulf whether it's Qatar or anywhere else whether it was the UAE or Saudi Arabia compared to a World Cup that was say in uh, Germany or in South America or wherever else so uh, it's just a, a more natural target and it's got to be seen to go well I mean an awful lot of people would like the Qataris to fail I mean a lot of their neighbours would like Qatar to fail remember Qatar is regarded as a sort of a vulgar upstart in the Gulf because it's a very rich, very, very small state that is playing quite a big role in world affairs. And so from the Qatari point of view and the British point of view, because we're very close to Qatar in lots of different ways, this has got to be seen to go well, not just not just without any big terrorist instance, but without any disruption that makes it look as if it was a mistake to have the World Cup there. Professor Michael Clark, good to speak to you. Top of the class. Thank you. And my thanks to all of our guests. That That's all for now. We'll be back with another BFBS SITREP next Thursday. Until then, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And you can catch up with past programmes on the website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. There you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. So, Jamie Gordon, I see that you want to join me on Mav Geeks and Military Aircraft Obsession. Yes, Jenny. A few questions. Are you obsessed by military aircraft? Yes, Jenny. Do you dream about military aircraft? Yes, Jenny. Do you bore people to death about military aircraft? Yes, Jenny. And the most important question, Jamie, are you funnier than me? Absolutely not, Jenny. Oh, you've got the job. That said, nothing can replace, especially in the big aircraft, suddenly being up behind another big aircraft and having to to refuel against it. About 30,000 feet at 0.9, my my canopy shattered, fatigue, failure, also went down the engine and briefly stopped the engine as well. So tell me about the aircraft and what she's like to fly. Does she handle well? She's amazing. She's a big girl, but uh, when you're sitting in that... The best girls, I find. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, (laughs) no, when you're sitting in the front of that aircraft, sometimes you forget how big she really is. Okay. And I just sat back, hands off the controls, and let him take the landing. He had no idea I was doing that. Join us for series number three of Mav Geeks, a military aircraft obsession. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Don't peek too early, Jamie.